Okay, hi and welcome back to another edition of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today is episode 51 and I am very pleased to bring to you all um, a very well-known uh, professor and researcher, John Hawley, all the way from the other side of the world and completely different time zones. So he's late in the day whilst I'm early in the day here in London. But uh, anyway, welcome, John. Thank you very much. And I guess on average, we're, uh, we're about midday, so that's fine. Yeah, that, that will work. <laughs> Actually, um, uh, let's, the, the way I usually kick these podcasts off is having you tell us who you are. I know most people are going to know who you are, but just in case those that don't, do you want to just quickly tell us who you, who you are and what your research is? Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm the director of the Centre for Exercise and Nutrition uh, in the newly formed, actually, Mary MacKillop Institute here in Melbourne, in Australia. Um, I'm married to uh, Professor Louise Burke, who, uh, as any nutritionist or sports nutritionist know, is, is reasonably well known in the world and often introduced as her husband, who dabbles in research. So that's always a <laughs> good starter. Um, and between us, I guess, over the last decade, um, the lab's focused on studies of exercise, nutrient interactions, some of them with respect to athletic performance, but others also with respect to, to weight loss and the, the diabetics. So a little bit of both, a little bit of the health side and also quite a bit of the performance side as well. No, that's, that's great. Actually, um, I heard you speak when you were visiting in the UK um, at the Leicester Tigers uh, Rugby Club uh, a couple of years back. And... Um, uh, it was great because both you and Louise were, were sort of lecturing. It was um, a great experience. I think that was before the ISEC, International Sports and Exercise Nutrition Conference, uh, uh, yes. I think so. But what I learned about you there is that you, um, uh, like I guess some um, or many Australians, but you have, a, you have a close link to the UK, don't you? Absolutely. So I was born there and actually uh, parents emigrated to New Zealand, hence if there's ever a game of rugby between the Wallabies and the All Blacks, it's always the All Blacks for me. So I did my school in there, but I actually ended up coming back to Loughborough University. So I did a, a BSc honours at Loughborough before actually being, I guess, incredibly lucky with hindsight to have the privilege of working with Dave Costell in the States and uh, more recently with Tim Noakes for a PhD and a postdoc, although um, whether that's a dubious distinction, I'm not quite sure at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, so... I'm not sure how many people that are listening to this podcast will be um, looking at the date that we recorded this, but I, uh, there's a few crazy things going on in the uh, in the world of um, uh, science, which is filtering its way through to uh, the general uh, sort of knowledge base that, that the public get hold of, whether it's through the media or Twitter or, or whatnot, which, of course, is one of our favourite topics is to... Um, the role of, of carbohydrates and um, whether or not it's uh, the be-all and end-all to evil personified. And there's, you know, it's an interesting debate. And I've gotten into this um, with different kinds of um, researchers and practitioners. Um, a good buddy of yours, James Morton, has been on a few times now and we've talked a lot about um, the roles of um, carbohydrate training and train low and train high and so on that was quite some time ago and there's been some developments since then um i've talked to um like stephen guinay who's a neurobiologist and you know the role that even uh, carbohydrates can have to um uh the, the the triggers or the stimulus that 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 makes us eat 
more carbohydrates, which can be another matter, of course. Um, and um, all kinds of other practitioners from uh, Lee Hamilton. Uh, we talked a lot about molecular signaling and, and various other things. So I've left all kinds of people out, I know. But, um, you know, we have gotten into this. But I feel that because lately there's been all this stuff that Professor Tim Noakes has sort of gotten us all riled a bit again um, and we're revisiting this concept that carbohydrates um, are a big problem. Um, I, I wanted to re-explore some of this, uh, not so much what Noakes has, has gone into, maybe uh, I might even get Noakes onto the podcast and we can maybe try and get into this, but the thing that I'm seeing is is very much this this idea that it's either you're in the no-carb camp or you're in the high-carb camp. And um, actually, last week, I attended a lecture uh, with James Morton at the um, UK Sports and Exercise Nutrition Register, had a, a special showcase. And he, he came up with a great phrase, which I think you'll agree with, grieve with, which was, you know, don't train low-carb, don't train high-carb, train smart-carb. Um, and this idea of sort of the periodization or the, or the strategic use of carbohydrates is, is starting to become more prominent, which um, I did actually get into with Trent Stellingworth uh, recently as well. So we had some great stuff on that. But we haven't actually delved deep into this concept of carbohydrate availability and, and, and what actually happens when we train low and, and that so on. But I know you and I know Louise has published a great deal of stuff on this over the years and you've sort of gone in and out of... Um, um, you know, what you feel is, is your conclusion, so to speak, to this. But do you want to just give us an overview as to why we've even started debating this, this whole topic of low or high carb? Yeah, I, I think you've hit a lot of the key words there in the, in the preamble. And I, I, I think we've, we've got this message that it's either or or black and white. And, you know, no one's ever said that, or at least we've never said that. And I think that's the problem with the public message at the moment. I'll get on to the athlete in a second. But it, it's degrees of moderation. You know, too much fat is bad. Too, too little fat is bad. You know, too much weight is bad. Too little is bad. So I, I think we've lost the plot as far as thinking, as you correctly pointed out, it's one camp or the other. A couple of things that you said are, are very important. You know, the concept of periodizing your diet, you know, it's not a new thing. We, we periodized diet way back with Bergstrom and Holtman when they did their classic carbohydrate loading studies. That was dietary periodization for a, for a performance output. I think where we've started to get a lot smarter, and certainly, you know, the Louise Burks, Trent Stellingworths, and many other of our, our colleagues who we've collaborated around the world have now got this notion that, you know, we shouldn't be having high carbohydrate all the time. What we should be doing is matching carbohydrate availability, and that's a a very useful term to think of this whole framework in to the demands of specific training sessions and, and I'll just give you an example when our first train low paper came out in in the Journal of Physi uh, Applied Physiology in 2008 you know I had phone calls from coaches who had read the article and obviously misinterpreted it. and they said well you said train low and we've been doing this for 10 or 12 days and my athletes you know have just fallen into a heap and I said well nowhere in the paper does it say train two or three days it says uh, or for two or three weeks it says train low and periodize this, perhaps two or three sessions per week. And again, it's the case of taking a message and taking it to its extreme. That's not what we're saying. And I don't think any of the sports nutritionists or exercise physiologists out there would ever say, 
you know, train <coughs> low for a period of time. It's part of a periodized training and nutrition program. And, and that's where we've actually come at the, the carbohydrate availability concept. Sometimes you train with high carbohydrate availability. Other times you train with low carbohydrate availability. It depends on what you want to get out of that specific training session. Yeah, I, I think, and, I, and I've certainly been guilty of this over the years, um, and I've, I've, I've learned now um, that you guys as, as researchers are um, putting a hell of a lot of work into finding out, for example, mechanisms behind certain things. And you have a certain question in mind and you go around, um, uh, go, you know, put a lot into actually finding out answers, hopefully, to some of those mechanistic questions. The problem is, is once you, you publish it, the paper comes out, someone reads it. In fact, they don't read it. They don't read the paper. They just read the title. They read the, um, the abstract or possibly the conclusion. And what they're not doing is asking themselves, does this study appropriately inform practice? And in what context? Um, does that, I mean, I'm assuming that drives you nuts. Well, it drives me nuts on some of my grad students. You've just described most of them. You know, read the paper and they'll read the title and the abstract and probably, probably the conclusion as well. And I guess it's the message that gets um, mixed and diluted and in many, many cases misinterpreted by the lay press. So often, you know, you'll, as you say, publish the scientific article. Someone will come on board, phone you, talk to you, newspaper, whoever it is. And all of a sudden you see some sensational title and you think, well, <laughs> I've been totally misquoted. That's not what I said at all. And then the athlete takes it on board. And of course, the athlete is always looking for the magic bullet. They are always looking for that performance edge. So if they think, for example, train low is going to do it, well, if one day of train low a week is good, two's got to be twice as good, and you know, four has got to be four times better. Well, of course, that's not the case. You know, um, in any dose response, there becomes a point whether it's a drug or training or nutrient availability where you just don't improve anymore or you don't get a further adaptation. So your points are again very, very valid. I, I get very frustrated when the message that we have really conservatively set out to state is then totally, um, I guess, jumbled up and comes out looking like nothing which the original study was. You know, I, as you're saying that, I came up with an idea which, um, you know, when we watch movies, they have a, a rating like, P, you know, parental guidance or whatever. I reckon we should have some sort of rating for a paper for the for the reader if if you have a certain level of education or you're below a certain level of education there needs to be a warning sign that you may take this paper out of context because that is what's happening isn't it precisely the should also be some sort of censorship on the people writing these articles or in some cases reviewing them and letting them appear in journals but no absolutely true look it, i it's a, it's a very interesting concept in itself, you know, the, the whole publication game. And, of course, you know, everyone's in the field will know it's either publish or peril. So occasionally, you know, you're happy to do some press to, to get some publicity for a paper or whatever. But the worst thing for a scientist, you know, it's, it's questioning our scientific integrity almost, is when the message gets so higgledy-piggledy and, and misinterpreted that, you know, it bears no resemblance to what we've done. And, and you know, it, it's... It's not analogous to scientific fraud, but it's, it's really a gross misinterpretation of what we do. And that's very frustrating for, for all the scientists. And, you know, as, as the students will learn when they uh, follow this field and if they keep with it, it, it's one thing you've got to be very, very careful of. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, think, I think 
One thing that I certainly see is that really sort of top-end science is, is invariably not disseminated with sexy messages. <laughs> the language is just not that attractive sometimes. And um, I can see how things get taken out of context. So, for example, and because I need to create a segue here to get us more on track here, but, you know, you talk about X and X sort of method or supplement or training methodology increases fat oxidation. So immediately that's going to be taken to, to, to be, well, taking this pill or doing this training method is going to make you burn more fat. Now, depending on how you look at that, it is correct um, that this fat burner supplement might increase fat oxidation. But whether or not that's actually relevant, um, you might burn more fat walking to the shop to buy the supplement and or that that funny old thing called energy balance which people keep ignoring is that you may burn more fat during the workout but you might eat more fat in every meal for the rest of the day and therefore you still ate more calories or more energy because I know calories is a, is a difficult subject for some people but I mean how you know I, I guess let's let's bring this I guess to the topic at hand your one of your areas of, of expertise then this business of um, low carbohydrate availability and training adaptations and so on and, and if we split that into two areas we've got weight management is one area um, and then performance is another often they get confused um, c- could you perhaps maybe help us understand the distinction between the two yeah absolutely I mean if we go back historically to really the, the first paper in this area and give credit where credit's due it was from the late Bank Saltine's lab um, a paper in Journal of Applied Physiology first author was Anne Hansen and they showed albeit in a totally uh, non-practical model which was the what we call the Copenhagen single leg kicking model so it, there's no resemblance whatsoever to athletic events but neither did they say it should and they showed that if you train for a period of 10 weeks with one leg training, 50% of the sessions with low glycogen versus the other leg training, the same volume of training and the same intensity with normal glycogen stores, that by and large, the adaptations in the muscle were greatly, uh, sorry, were great, greatly enhanced or enhanced to a greater extent, I should say, than when the leg trained with low glycogen. And this was the first study to sort of show that. Now, from that, we followed it up. We said, well, let's take this model a little bit further and apply it to athletes in whole body uh, movement. So we did cyclists. And, you know, those familiar with the paper, Wikian Yeo was the first author in Journal of Applied Physiology in 2008. And we showed again that, yes, you could really perturb the muscle adaptations. And we got tremendous changes in some of the enzymes to do with substrate metabolism and fat burning, as you've, you know, alluded to. But I guess... To finish the performance, we didn't actually see any changes in performance. So, as my wife is quite often very fond of saying, you know, you can measure all this alphabet soup stuff that you do in the muscle, but if it doesn't translate into performance, well, well what's the point? And, that, and that's a very good question. And, you know, I'll, I'll perhaps expand on a, a recent study which we've, we've just finished with a new concept which we, we've called sleep low. Mm-hmm. But to, just to, to come back to your original point there about the, the burning fat and everything else, so this was originally a concept for athletes. And then, of course, as you pointed out again correctly, it's been taken up by the lay press as, as a sort of panicker for, for weight loss. So now we've got these people, you know, training low. Well, you know, 
without being facetious or trying to sound clever, you know, these people would be fine training under any circumstances. Just get them training. Forget train low or train high or carbohydrate availability. Just get them to burn more energy. Mm. And, you know, if you're an overweight person and you're trying to lose body fat, yes, training with lower glycogen is, is likely to burn more fat during that exercise session. But, you know, if you then go away and eat, as you said, twice as many kilocalories or twice as much energy throughout the remainder of the day, it's all been a little bit, you know, pointless. So I think for the health message, training low is very much like the icing on the icing on the cake. You need to bake the cake. In other words, you need to burn the energy properly by exercising properly at the desired intensity and the desired duration to whatever your training goals or weight goals happens to be. Whether you add train low and some of these fancy techniques is, as I say, it's a bit like the icing on the icing on the cake. Get the cake right first and worry about the other stuff later. So does it have a place in weight loss? Well, possibly, yes. But does it have a place uh, above just normal energy in, energy out? Well, I'm not quite sure it does, to be completely honest. And I think we'd be better off encouraging people who want to lose fat mass just to be going out and exercising as long as they can, as often as they can, and then worrying about the finer details. Yeah, personal, I, I think also for all the rocket science we can all get into, and I know the likes of you and many of your predecessors on this podcast can happily talk for hours about sort of the mechanisms for and against all this stuff. But, but you know, the, the, the evidence is quite clear that what this really boils down to for most people, if, if we're talking about weight management, it's about what you can do consistently. Um, you know, if, 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 you, if you can't imagine yourself doing this prescribed diet and exercise routine a year from now, it's probably not something you're going to stick to. And it's that consistency that seems to be the biggest factor. So you need to bear that in mind because, yes, the rocket science may show that that training method's going to be more effective. But like you say, if you're not an elite athlete, it's probably not relevant anyway. But also if it means you're less likely to work out as often, it's, it's, it's madness. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the biggest barrier to, to physical participation that most people actually say is a, a lack of time. And I guess this is a good bridge to, to something else that we can discuss is, you know, the role of the high intensity training model, the HIP model has been, you know, receiving a lot of press in the last five or six years. And, you know, people say, oh, you shouldn't be doing high intensity training if you're overweight, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't burn fat and this, that and the other. And my argument is, well, if you're doing that, it's better than doing nothing. You weren't doing anything before. Mm. And as you're probably familiar with the work of Marty Gibala and... Yeah, he's been, on, he's been on this podcast, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I'm a good friend and good colleague of Marty's. Uh, and, and again, getting people to exercise is the fundamental problem underlying most of the obesity epidemic. If you look at uh, the intake of energy as far as calories, and it doesn't really matter what the macronutrients are, the rise in obesity far outstrips the very small increase in energy that we're taking in. So there's only one environmental factor, if you look at it from what we call an epigenetic perspective, which have changed, and that's our complete lack of physical activity. Mm. I mean, it's, it's even difficult for people, you know, like scientists, like, like ourselves, who I have to physically make myself walk down the corridor to print rather than print at my desk. You have to make conscious decisions to walk up the stairs rather than get, you know, an elevator for, for two levels and things like this. We've engineered physical activity out the lifestyle. So to talk about train low and some of these things which are very, very interesting to the athlete, no question about that, 
But to talk about that as far as a general health message is, I think we're missing the boat absolutely completely. It's a complete irrelevant discussion as far as the macro problem goes. Yeah, and I, just as a caveat to what you were saying, I think also people, when they discuss these things as it relates to weight management in, in average people that live in a real world, you know, exercise is, is, a, is a complex which isn't just about energy balance and all the things that goes on from a sort of a physiological perspective. It's also a psychological thing. And people, you know, there's plenty of research out there that shows people who exercise also tend to have better habits and behaviours and they tend to make better choices and so on, which of course is a major factor. But if all you're going to focus on is just the energy balance impact of exercise, I think you're sort of missing the point. I agree. And I think, it, again, I would be the first to admit that exercise alone and, and or diet alone are, are probably strategies doomed to failure. You know, we've just finished a large weight loss study, which is, which is actually under review at the moment, of, of 100 people looking at an exercise, higher protein diet. The question here was, and it's very relevant to what we're talking about, does the low carbohydrate drive the weight loss or is it adequate just to have high protein? And in actual fact, we found out quite conclusively that that varying the carbohydrate content makes very little difference so long as you're energy restricted, but more importantly, so long as you're exercising. We had participants uh, in a 16-week exercise diet study with what we would think is very moderate energy restriction, around 400 to 500 kilocalories a day, doing three sessions of aerobic training a week and three sessions of resistance training. And all participants irrespective of the diet group, lost on average around eight kilograms. Now, eight kilograms of what is really the question we should be asking. They lost eight kilograms of fat and were able to maintain or slightly increase their lean muscle mass. And one thing I really feel very passionate about, and I feel it's been lost in this whole weight loss discussion of high carbs, low carbs, high fat, low fat, is that no one really is talking about protein as though it's like the missing nutrient that you know certain people have forgotten and no one refers to body composition mm. you know really don't give a damn if someone loses 10 kilos and they lose 10 kilos of muscle mass the health prognosis or even the athletic prognosis is not a good one so let's get back and talk about fat mass and lean mass rather than just talking about weight loss which i think is a completely irrelevant uh, and totally misleading concept for the public Oh, no, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, and actually, you, you just reminded me of something I wanted to get into this um, chat with you, uh, uh, which actually would be a good place to start our next conversation with, which is people refer to this idea of low carbohydrate, high carbohydrate, low protein, high protein. And yet my idea of low carbohydrate is someone else's idea of no carbohydrate. My idea of, of low protein is someone else's idea of high protein. So I think part of the problem here is, is we're not really defining what we mean by low and high carb. Now, that's very good. And in order to frame any discussion, you know, you've got to start with those definitions. And if you look at the weight loss list, uh, literature, the, the definition of a, a low carbohydrate is 25% of your energy or less coming from carbohydrate. Now, if you look at some of the people who are talking about low carbohydrate, high fat diets at the moment, they're advertising or promulgating a reduced 
intakes of much, much less than that. So they're very, very extreme. So I guess there's the concept of, you know, to add to the confusion, low carbohydrate, which is what I've just defined, which is what the clinical nutrition literature says, and very low carbohydrate, which is, you know, somewhere below that, but we've not really quite defined it. Mm. And again, I'd like to make the point that any time you alter carbohydrate, of course, you alter fat. But in none of the discussions at the moment around the high fat, low carb is protein mentioned. And again, in our hands, in Stuart Phillips' hands, in many very good laboratories around the world, you can maintain your muscle mass and lose fat mass, providing the protein content is a little bit, little bit above the RDA. So again, lost in the message here, somewhere lost in translation, is the fact that we do have another macronutrient, and it's actually a very, very important one as far as muscle mass is concerned. Yeah. So listen, um, I know there's been lots of debates by people who start to argue um, about the relative importance of carbohydrates. And I, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of research on the benefits of carbohydrates performance and there isn't so much evidence to go the other way, which doesn't necessarily mean there isn't any benefit to, to going that way. It's just, you know, we don't have maybe enough research and there will be. But um, I, I know that um, Trent Stellingworth and Gregory Cox did a systematic review where they showed that of the 61 published studies, 82% showed a statistically significant performance benefit. Now, I could be wrong, but to me, the evidence, that's, that's extremely clear that there's a benefit to carbohydrate to performance. Now, I also get from listening to people like James Morton reading your work, for example, there's a clear benefit to training low carbohydrate, which we can get into into now. Why why do you feel that despite that level of evidence, assuming, and this maybe is where we're getting into dangerous waters, assuming someone's able to press reset on their bias meter in their head, what, why is it that people are finding it hard to get to grips with this idea of maybe we should periodize our carbohydrates as opposed to just have this carbs is everything or low carbs is everything sort of mentality well i think you get back in i see it's a very interesting discussion we could discuss this all night or all morning depending <laughs> on where we are but you know I, I people are always looking for a quick fix and that's part of the problem whether they're athletes looking for the magic bullet as i said earlier or whether they're people who are overweight, you know, which has probably taken them a decade to do, everyone wants the overnight fix. So, you know, is there an exercise mimetic pill? Is there a drug to do this? What can I do with very little effort? You know, we're a society who Twitters, tweets, and Facebooks, and does all this thing. We're instant gratification people now. And the problem is, some of the problems, particularly with obesity, don't happen overnight, as you know. So, you know, we're always looking for that quick fix. Why is the message, again, sort of been lost in translation? Well, it's awfully hard to know why certain people are saying certain things, in my opinion, because anything I say, I hopefully can pick up and will back up all the time with scientific evidence. It's, it's okay to have an opinion on something, but when it's not backed up by hard scientific data, and this gets back to your point, if 80-odd percent of the studies show that from reputable labs independently assessed throughout the world with different research groups, pools of subjects, males and females, well, 80% is a pretty good figure for me. Um, why we are lost in this, you know, fat is better at the moment, I'm not sure. But 
if I can just expand on that just for a second, if you go back to the original study which sort of kick-started all this high-fat ketogenic diet stuff off, it, it was a study of Finney in 1983 published in Metabolism. They had five subjects and they had them exercise on a time trial to exhaustion, eat a month of a ketogenic diet or a higher carbohydrate diet, and then exercise them to exhaustion again. And what they showed in the title of the paper was the preservation of submaximal exercise capacity. That's actually the title. Now, preservation is not an improvement. And if you go back and tease out the data, which I have done, I've talked about it many times, one subject out of the five was an extreme outlier. And if you took that subject out, there's absolutely no difference in exercise performance. There is no difference anyway, but without that subject, the high carbohydrate comes out much better. The point I'm trying to make here, and again, the readers are encouraged to go to the original paper and look at this conclusion. Finney actually concluded, to his credit then, that a high-fat ketogenic diet may be of use for athletes participating in, and I haven't got the paper, but it's fairly close to the quote, endurance events lasting two days or longer. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't do or work with any athletes who are participating in endurance events lasting two days or longer. So, again, that message has been lost. How we can now be, again, trying to push the message that a high-fat diet is beneficial for performance of shorter-term endurance events, and by shorter-term, I mean basically all Olympic events, is completely beyond me, absolutely beyond me. Yeah. No, 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 I, I agree. And the, the way I've come to explain this to my students um, is all of these things are like tools in a toolbox. And as a, a practitioner... You've, you know, hopefully you've had enough education and you've read all these papers and these all are tools that you stick in your toolbox and you take them with you to your place of work and you will be confronted with a very unique scenario, usually an athlete. And fair to say elite athletes tend to be outliers, so they're going to be even bigger freaks. Um, certainly in my own applied experience, which is most of what I do, um, no one ever is presented to you like they are in the textbooks. So it's, it's useful to have those tools and understand what those tools are useful for. Now, I, I think that when people start to realize that we, if we use these things as tools and we apply them at the right time um, for the right purpose, which is why I like this word periodization, because it's, it's something which we know well in the strength and conditioning world. And it makes total sense to match everything from energy intake um, to um, topics that I've discussed with um, many of previous guests about the impact that sort of various nutritional strategies can have that can influence um, molecular signaling and um, regulation of enzymes and all kinds of stuff, which maybe we'll have time to get into. Um, so in, in light of that, let's use this topic as, as one of many tools in the toolbox. Keto, uh, you know, fat adapted, however people want to get into, that's just another tool that may certainly suit some people at some point in their season or, you know, in our periodization plan. But specifically, this focus on training in, in a low glycogen state, what, why do we want to consider doing that? Well, at the end of the day, if you think of any training or nutrient intervention, it's all about perturbing the homeostasis in the cell. 
You know, when you train, you overload the muscle or cardiovascular system, whatever it happens to be, and I'm just talking in generic terms here so we can just get the message across in, in general terms. Anytime you withdraw or take carbohydrate or energy away from the muscle, you're placing it basically under more metabolic stress. You're asking it to do more work. You're challenging it to a greater degree. So all training low is doing, as I, I try and lecture this to the students, is you're really training, but you're perturbing the system more just merely by removing substrate that the muscle needs. Now, it's no surprise that when we do these studies, we get an enhancement of what I'll call the training-induced adaptations in the muscle. Now, that's one thing, but as I said earlier, it doesn't always translate into a performance benefit. We can, we can shift fat oxidation dramatically in as little as, you know, four or five days with a high-fat diet. We can do that with training, but at the end of the day, when you go into a race, whether it's a 40K time trial or a two-hour, three-hour marathon, whatever, carbohydrate is still the predominant fuel that you need to fuel the muscle for oxidative metabolism. So again, all the adaptations in the muscle that we're accruing through training with low carbohydrate availability, at the moment, at least until one study, which is going to come out fairly soon, don't seem to show a performance enhancement. Now, there may be many reasons for that, and without getting into too much detail, I really genuinely believe that one of the reasons that we can't detect a performance enhancement is because we don't have the tools sensitive enough in the lab. In other words, there may well be a very small and physiologically meaningful to the athlete improvement in performance out on the road. But our lab trials, whether they're you know time trials or time to exhaustion or whatever, are not sensitive to pick those up. And just finally on that note, you know, statistical significance for the dreaded journal versus physiological significance for the athlete are poles apart. Mm. You know, my work, uh, sorry, my wife works at the coalface with elite athletes and, you know, she's not really bothered about statistical significance. She is, as you said, dealing with that extreme outlier of N equals one and trying to budge their performance. So again, what we can detect in the lab, if we can detect a difference, you can bet your bottom dollar it's a pretty big improvement in the field out there, much larger possibly than we actually think it is in the laboratory. Yeah, and I, I think that is important because we talk about science and all the stuff that we can learn from that, but how much of that science informs practice, or more importantly, how much of that science um, appropriately informs practice because what I think we're seeing is a lot of science is inappropriately being interpreted and therefore inappropriately informing practice um, and you you know it, it is important to make that distinction between a normal quote-unquote person and an elite athlete and I've said this in previous podcasts something that I sort of came to realize recently uh, or relatively recently is this idea that you know, one man's aerobic exercise is another man's anaerobic exercise. It is a, a very sort of context-driven sort of thought, you know. So um, let's go back then to, you know, into the um, this business of, of low-carb training in a low-carbohydrate state. And I know that I have explored this a bit with, with some other people, but there are different strategies here, um, and there's different ways of approaching this. And... Um, um, You've described very well um, that training in a low-carbohydrate state forces the body, I guess, to adapt to the circumstances it finds itself in. And it's those adaptations that um, we're hoping enhances that machinery one way or the other. But it, it's not necessarily something 
that you want to be doing on race day, of course. No, uh, look, I, the, the problem with the train low strategy, and I guess you've mentioned the fact that there are different strategies, and that's what I'll just briefly touch upon, is that when we train low in the protocols that have been used in the literature, it's typically doing a, an early morning session, followed several hours later after withholding carbohydrate by another session. And the problem there is that, at least in the studies that have been done, when you try and perform a second session of any intensity, which would be meaningful to the athlete, the training intensity is compromised, all right? And on average, it goes down around 7 or 8% of power if you're a cyclist. Now, 7 or 8% of power would be the difference between, you know, the guys at the front of the peloton and the guy just about to get, you know, swept up at the back type thing. So it's a massive, massive difference. So we thought, well, this is not really good. This is not what the coach wants. You know, as I said to my wife again, if I told your athlete, you know, they can train at a lower power output while feeling pretty useless as well at the same time, because there's no question it's harder and the athlete perceives it as hard, you know, she'd get left out of her job. So we, we've sat down and thought about this and we've come up with a strategy, which I did present last year in the UK, actually, for the first time called sleeping low. Mm. So now what we've done um, very, very briefly is we bring the athlete in early evening when they've had carbohydrate throughout the day the muscle is replenished and they start the training session with adequate carbohydrate stores they do a high intensity training session so therefore the the compromised training that we saw before isn't an issue now because they start that evening session with high glycogen and they're able to sustain the high intensity coach is happy the athlete we then put them to bed when we did the study, which is in, in review at the moment. They slept in the laboratory overnight. We actually overnight fasted them. We were you know, weighing up whether to give them protein or whether to give them something else. But we thought, well, we'll just fast them. They slept low, in other words. They slept with low carbohydrate availability. The next morning, after this overnight fast of around 10 hours, they went out and did a two-hour steady-state ride. Now, during that steady-state ride, Fat oxidation just went through the roof, as you would expect. The point here, and we did the acute study, and I'll mention very briefly again in a minute the, the chronic study, is that we saw massive enhancements in the ability to burn fat, which we saw in our previous studies, but now we did not compromise the training intensity, which we saw before. Now, that's the segue to the next study, which has just been completed by the French Institute of Sport, and our collaborators there are Chris Horsworth and, and other people who have done this study, which again I did present and has been presented at the European College of Sports uh, Science last year. They took our model and they did it over a three-week training period. Now, they didn't do all the biopsies and signaling, which we did, to show that once again we had an enhanced ability of the muscle to do stuff, but we didn't do the performance. They did. And after three weeks of our sleep low but train high strategy, they for the first time have shown a clear benefit to a 10-kilometer run performance undertaken after 40 minutes of pretty intense cycling. So whereas the other studies before were unable to detect it, this was a, a study not done in the lab but done in an indoor running track. I think it's ecologically valid. It was a case of every single subject, and there were 10 in one group and 11 in the other group, improving i think this is a real result and a, a very positive finding so if you talk to the athletes again and you 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 say they're about science informing uh the coach or the lay people and this that and the other if we're honest 
most of our training strategies come from the field. Coaches are already doing this stuff. We merely come along as scientists and say, you know what, we've just tested this train low, it works. And again, in, in finishing a rather long monologue here, I remember talking to, to Frank Shorter, the Olympic uh, marathon champion from the US in 72 and should have been Olympic champion in 76, except he was beaten by Vladimir Sapinski, who was later shown to be on a an extreme doping program. So in my book, Frank Shorter's got two Olympic gold medalists. And I was describing this to him just after our study being published in 2009, rather excitedly. And Frank Shorter listened to me and sort of put up with the science, as it were. And then he said, let me tell you what I used to do. I used to go and run, not on a Sunday morning with the rest of the group, but on a Sunday afternoon as hard as I could for about 20 miles. I used to come in and I used to deprive myself of carbohydrate. I used to have a high protein, and high fat meal. I'd then go out the next morning and do as many 800 reps as I could with about a minute recovery. And as soon as I lost, lost the intensity, I think he said he was doing them in 210, 212, as soon as the pace dropped below that, I'd stop running. In other words, he said, I don't think your train low strategy is that new. No. <laughs> and of course, this was coming from a man who used DFIS Coca-Cola in the marathon in 1972. So I guess the point in a very long-winded way here is to say that you know, we often come along and just confirm scientifically under control conditions what athletes are already doing in the field. Athletes were doing train low far, far earlier than before Thanks Saltine and we came along to test it in the lab. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And I, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we all meet people who swear by their special recipe of training and lifestyle. And of course, some of those things are, like you described, uh, gold medal winning strategies but of course there are probably more that definitely aren't <laughs> so well, yes I, I think the case here is you know sometimes you look at the olympic athletes and hold them up and you think well they're doing this it must work but you know to be honest i remember being at loughborough and you know part of the training squad which sebastian coe was in and you could have run the guy backwards you know downhill and he still would have been a world record holder these guys are fundamentally different from you and i mm. well at least myself I'll, i definitely won't include mate. no definitely <laughs> I mean, they're genetically different. So, you know, you could probably do a lot wrong with these guys. And because of the genetic mix that they've been given, they'd still turn out pretty good as well. So yeah. it's always dangerous to take the training practices of a, you know, of a Jim Ryan or a Sebastian Coe or whoever it happens to be and then apply them to, to yourself because, you know, again, the genetics just aren't the same. Yes. And I mean, there's that saying, isn't it? And I, I can't remember. It might have been... Professor Ron Moon that said this, uh, at least I, I, I know I've heard it said by him, um, something along the lines of, um, you know, sort of a really fantastic nutrition plan isn't going to make an average person an Olympic athlete. But, um, you know, someone who has the potential to be an Olympic athlete, who has a very poor nutrition plan, may, may be a rather mediocre elite athlete. And that, that is an interesting distinction, I think. I think it's absolutely valid, and yeah, I've, I've heard Ron say that. I'm not sure if he's uh, actually meaning that sentence to himself because he was a—he's a reasonably good athlete, probably with very poor nutrition in those days before he knew about it. But that's a very, very good, important point. Again, it's like the icing on the cake analogy. You have to get the fundamentals right before you put the sprinkles on. Mm -hmm. And I think again, a lot of people in looking for the quick fix or the magic bullet or the weight loss or whatever it happens to be don't do the basics right and until you get the basics right you know there's no point putting those little sprinkles on the cake because they're not going to make much of a difference yeah no i i agree as a as a practitioner i spend 
90 plus percent of my time just trying to get people to master the basics and despite yeah. all this rocket science we get into i mean that might be a reason why i do these podcasts just so i can actually talk about this stuff because <laughs> i don't i don't get to with the athletes they don't even know what a vegetable is uh, no, you know uh, but it is true mastering the basics is is yeah. critical and then like i've mentioned these are all tools in the toolbox to fine-tune everything over and above um so just to just talking about rocket science, just one area that I personally find really interesting is um, having discussed um, a lot of this molecular stuff with uh, people like Lee Hamilton. I even got to talk um, to Dan Ogborn, um, who's from McMaster, about some of the mitochondrial stuff, uh, more to do with aging and sarcopenia and so on. But as you have mentioned, you know, as, as high tech as your labs appear to be they're still relatively primitive in terms of of what we're really needing to learn isn't it and i think that that we maybe take this image of all the microscopes and sort of buzzing computers and western blotting gadgets and all you know i i was at liverpool john moore's recently having a look around and i got to see all this stuff from like illumofluorescence microscopy and all these things which are really cool but actually it's still pretty basic isn't it yeah, you've got all the buzzwords there, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I remember, look, Dave Costell came out to Australia last year and, you know, he, we just had a sort of open chat to him with the students. And at the end of the day, he said, look, you can measure a lot of things these days and you can measure them a lot faster than we used to. But at the end of the day, you know, can you predict performance better? Can you train athletes better? Is the nutrition better? And, you know, it really challenged the students and myself to think of, how much progress have we ha- you know, made in the last decade or so or since Dave sort of hung up his, uh, his running shoes and his swim togs and, and, and teetered off into semi-retirement? The point, again, we can measure thousands of genes. We can do microarrays. I could give you an enormous amount of information about your personal genetics and everything else. Does it as a practitioner enable me to either you know, predict disease on the one hand or say whether you're going to be a good athlete on the other hand? I'm not sure it does. I'm really not sure it does. I just think we get into a level of sophistication where we have to perhaps pull back and say, look, firstly, let's study the whole body rather than just a little bit of muscle or a little bit of liver or a little bit of whatever it happens to be. You know, at the end of the day, we're an integrated human being where running, cycling, swimming or whatever it happens to be isn't just a muscular exercise. We know now that, you know, the brain talks to the muscle, the muscle talks to the brain, the cardiovascular system, the myokines that are released during exercise. It's a very integrated, but having said that, a very complicated system. And I think sometimes as scientists, we're guilty of saying, you know, and I've said it myself, you know, I don't really know what goes on above the neck. I just look at, you know, what goes on below the neck. Now, that's a simplistic view because I know nothing about psychology or sports psychology. But on the other hand, it, it's a bit of a reductionist model. And, you know, I'd be the first to criticize the reductionist model because it doesn't actually take it back to the whole body. So I think we've really, if you like, come full circle. We started with the whole body. We've gone molecular. And I think now, at least for some of the research grants and some of the people throughout the world, it's like, well, hey, we've done this. We can measure this. But so what? Let's try and bring it back to the whole body intact human. And I I guess if there's a message throughout the whole podcast here, it's I'd like to see us have that integrated approach more and more, integrated training and nutrition and periodization and all the words that you've said, but integrated so 
that we can take that message and actually apply it to the person in the street who either wants to lose weight, to the athlete, or whatever it happens to be. I'd like to see us come back and try and use, and I know this word is, you know, the bugbear of scientists and, and grant holders and people who review grants, but we need to get back to translational whole body physiology. Yeah, yeah I've said it. No, no <laughs> good, 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 good. I'm pleased you did. Yeah, and I, uh, I've mentioned this and we've discussed this a few times. I, I've, I have an upcoming podcast all about this concept that you really can't be focusing purely on physiology without considering psychology because psychology can affect physiology and physiology can affect psychology and when we're talking about human beings in a real world we're very psychological emotional beings and food is is one of those things that is so intimately related with our psychology and our psychology can manipulate our behaviors and habits to food which obviously will translate to how it affects our physiology and there in lies a whole hornet's nest of topics of course um but i mean we're 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 we haven't got too long left and there was one topic uh just to delve back into some rocket science that hopefully you can help me with um i i've i've sort of read around a bit and i've had various guests and we've talked about aspects of this sort of training low carbohydrate or in a low glycogen state and um you know whether you're training with uh, sort of a reduced endogenous or exogenous carbohydrate availability. Um, they, you know, the, essentially some of the benefits include um, improvements to cell signaling or more time efficient cell signaling. Um, there's this mitochondrial biogenesis, uh, which I want to quickly get into. Um, increased lipid oxidation. Uh, my colleague at Guru Performance, uh, Scott Robinson, is just doing his PhD in one of his, uh, in fact, he just had a paper published in. Journal Applied Physiology, and there's some very interesting stuff coming out of that, which is this business of um, improving fat oxidation is also to do with metabolic health. So training low um, isn't just about performance or body composition. You know, health is an important factor, and and athletes aren't um, just athletes. They're human beings first, athletes second, and we must always consider health. So I think that there's some interesting parameters there. Um, and weight management obviously is a topic of debate um, over this area but bringing us quickly back to mitochondrial biogenesis we've, we've talked about that we've talked about this with other people but what are the what are the you know what is the actual performance benefits to having um, increased mitochondria well at the end of the day you know anytime you uh Put an athlete on a training program if they're an endurance athlete not a strength trained athlete for example one of the goals i guess is to increase mitochondrial biogenesis which is increase the number first of all or quality of the mitochondria they've got so that they can have handle substrates better and what happens with endurance training as you, as you well know is that there's shifts from using predominantly carbohydrate based fuels to fat based fuels now one of the things about lots of the adaptations in the muscle and whether it's mitochondrial biogenesis or increases in citrate synthase or any of the other enzymes of the TCA cycle or whatever is that often some of these adaptations especially in the athletic population are completely divorced from performance so I think again we can get too hung up on measuring stuff in the muscle as it were uh, they're all very well and they're lovely to see increases in PGC1 and all these wonderful as I said, alphabet soups that uh, my wife accuses me of measuring. But 
at the end of the day, you know, whether, whether they're meaningful as far as a performance output uh, or a, a weight management task or whatever it happens to be, I think that's probably the question that we, you know, we should be asking. So, yeah, mitochondrial biogenesis is something that, that happens, and it happens more readily, I guess, uh, when you stress the muscle under conditions of low carbohydrate availability. There are several studies to show that now, studies from James Morton's lab, studies from our lab, studies from Ben Saltine's lab. So in, in theory, on paper, that's a good adaptation. More mitochondria, mitochondrial biogenesis increases in key oxidative enzymes, which are uh, heavily involved in substrate metabolism. These are all good things. Don't get me wrong. They're very, very good. And they're very, very good also for, as you said, both the health perspective and the performance perspective. But again, don't get sort of sidetracked from the fact that these can happen almost in complete isolation from any functional changes in, in output to athletics performance for, for sure, and perhaps even for weight loss in some circumstances. So again, we can measure this stuff. It's all great. It's all very mechanistic. Let's bring it back and say, well, what does it actually mean for the, the person in the street? For the athlete, it means they can burn more fat. But again, I guess if you allow me the liberty of a couple of minutes, we've just finished a, a great study, which I think is a great study. And this, the reason I'm leaving this to last is I think it adds, adds to what we've been talking about, but perhaps brings everything together. So we started talking way, way ago, it seems, about you know high-fat diets and whether burning more fat has a role in endurance performance and this, that, and the other. So we thought, well, let's have a look at this in a cycling population. And very briefly, we took very, very well-trained cyclists capable of holding 310, 315 watts an hour. So it's an extremely good power output. We asked them to time trial over 60 minutes, over 90 minutes, and two hours. And we thought, well, if fat's really, really important in these events, why don't we block lipolysis, which is the liberation of free fatty acids, the appearance of free fatty acids in the bloodstream to be taken up by the muscle. We know from previous work that once the exercise intensity gets above 80, 85% of VO2 max, there's virtually very little use of both intramuscular substrate as far as fat is concerned and free fatty acids. So we did this study blocking lipolysis. We didn't see any difference in performance when we blocked lipolysis over 60 minutes. We didn't see any difference in performance when we blocked lipolysis over 90 minutes. We had to take them all the way out to two hours before we saw that the what we call a nicotinic acid, which is a substance which blocks lipolysis, lipolysis, actually had a negative effect on performance. So the way I interpret that data is that, you know, carbohydrate and more carbohydrate and more carbohydrate oxidation is very beneficial for high intensity events performed at 80 to 85 percent of VO2 max. And somewhere the crossover is between I guess 90 minutes and 120 when you really do need some fat but you need very little fat at anything less than that duration so again it gets back to your introduction you know about carbohydrate more is not necessarily always better well you want to be able to oxidize and firstly store a large amount of carbohydrate if your event is around 100 minutes and again that's not new data Bank Saltine showed that many many years ago but by using this drug to block fat I think we've really teased out its effect at least in events going up to two hours and where it does start to be very critical and the interesting thing is is it the lack of fat that impairs performance at two hours or is it the fact that the nicotinic acid actually accelerates the rate at which carbohydrate is burned and we think it's the latter and again we're exploring those but i think that's a nice thing to bring all the things that we've talked about perhaps together and just say well look you know as far as i'm concerned 
it seems prudent still, the conclusion of that paper was that we continue to recommend to athletes that carbohydrate availability before exercise and during exercise is still the way to go if you're involved in a performance event which lasts around 100 minutes or less. And you know, that's most team sports and that's most Olympic events as well. So, you know, sort of case closed as it were for the time being on, on the fat, I think, as far as we're concerned, as far as athletic performance. Brilliant, John. Great way to end the podcast, actually. So um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that's enough. Um, I think there's a lot of information there for everyone to get through. I think it integrates very well with previous podcasts. Um, and um, I'm extremely grateful for your time, John. I know it's, uh, it's getting late or very late, actually, where you are. Um, so I'll let you go now. And uh, I know folks can, um, obviously, all they've got to do is type in your name into Google or Google Scholar or uh, PubMed, yep. and they're going to come up with a bunch of stuff. But just quickly, what's the... The, uh, the website that people can learn more about your research and, and uh, find well, out more about it. I, I'll have to email you that on simply because I've just, we've literally in the last two weeks um, been amalgamated as part of a research institute. So ah, no whole new web. Yeah, no, no, that's I'll fine. Yeah, no, that's fine. I've been, uh, I've been saying for the past few podcasts, actually, I'm, I'm going to be creating a page per podcast with links to papers and references and so on. So I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Well, listen, um, thank you once again. It's been great to have you no on board and sharing your knowledge. Um, that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and you can learn more about this and other podcasts at guruperformance.com. <laughs>